You're listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. Jubilee Montreal is a Christian church located in downtown Montreal that exists to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org. This is not a thing for to feel guilt or that we're not there all the way, but it's it's the key to everything else in the text. If you, if you read the rest of this today and you try to put any of it into practice, it means nothing unless you get the first part. And that is that he's doing everything after this because he says love is motivating him. I think Paul would tell you that if, if it's not motivating you yet, don't bother. Go back to step one and ask the question if you're controlled and motivated by love. We also skip by love quickly, I think, because we don't get it. And I don't think we get it because we, we often, and you'll hear people talk like this, that, that um, if we talk about love too much, someone will say something like, yeah, well, God is not just love. You know, like he's also justice and he also requires something and he's also great and big and glorious. And those are, of course, all true. But the scriptures make it clear that God is love, that he is in his essence love. And Paul understood love not as some weak thing, that is like God's good side. That's his, like his, his, his warm, accepting side, pitted against his serious side. He thought that God was love completely and only. And so if anybody has a view of God, in, no matter how they, if they say they're a Christian or they're not a Christian, if they see God as anything but love, they have not seen him as he is. So Paul used to see Jesus specifically as a fake. He studied Jesus, he looked at him, he looked at the scriptures and he thought that Jesus was nothing but a liar, really. Pulling people away from truth and goodness and morality. And now here he is later saying that he's controlled and compelled by love. The love of Christ. That He says us, it's clear as we read, that he's compelled by the love that Jesus has shown to him. And this has become the, the operating principle of his life. The way he makes decisions the reason he does things. I mean, I don't, I, I'm staying on this for a second because I want you to wrestle with what motivates you. Just for, for real. I mean, when you wake up in the morning, what's the motivation? When you do things or don't do things, when you think about, you make plans for your life, what is motivating you? And the question is, at, at what point is it ever automatic that from your heart you're automatically motivated by the love you've received from God? that you see things like this. It, it'll kill, it's a very, uh, it's an uncomfortable process to go through actually. It's not a good one because what it will begin to do is it will begin to kill the old things that compelled you of which you won't know what to do with that. I know as I've been going through this process I feel like it kills my ambition and then I don't know what to do because I've only made decisions based on my ambition. I don't even know primarily what it is to make a decision based on love. So he says, Christ's love compels us. And then he says, because. Because we are convinced, the word convinced means, literally, it's a word that carries with it the meaning of like, I've looked through every option, and I've studied it all, and I've come to the reasonable conclusion that one died for all, and therefore all died. This is really like a, a curious couple of verses. Usually we give some time, but I didn't today, where every, uh, you would read this text together and, and uh, discuss it with someone next to you. And this part is curious because it, it sounds a bit odd. We're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. 
So if we take Paul literally, what he's saying is, and we're gonna, it's going to be a bit of teaching and a bit of detail just because we're looking at how, how does Paul think that everything changes so that you can apply it. Because we're, so Jesus's love is compelling me and controlling me. Why? For, off to the side here, I've become convinced of this thing, this way of looking at the world. So Paul's motivation's changing, now his view of the world is changing. I've become convinced of this one simple fact, that one, Jesus died for everyone. This can mess with some of our theology and some of what Paul says elsewhere. We're going to ask what he's saying here. We're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. So what does that mean? There's different ways to look at this. People disagree because it's kind of confusing. What does he mean by all died? The scriptures say elsewhere that we're dead. Paul says that we're dead in our trespasses and our sins, everyone. It's also clear from Genesis and elsewhere that the way that the Bible sees the human condition is that everybody's spiritually dead. We can't connect to God. But he says that it's as if when Jesus died, everyone else died too. He's trying to make a point. So he says, it's the way, when Paul looks out on the world now, and this is getting into when he says, which is actually a radical shift if you begin to think, wow, I can't believe I could see the world like this every day. When Paul looks out on the world and looks at people, he sees everything through this one lens, the death of Jesus. And through the death of Jesus, he now assumes that everybody with Jesus has died, whether they believe in him or not. This is one way of looking at the text, which is a radical belief. He says that Jesus, it's as if Jesus' death has already had an effect on everyone, whether they believe it or not, which is one of the keys to this passage, is that transformation is something God does, is something he's already doing, and it has little to nothing to do with people, except for one thing, which we'll talk about at the end. So when Jesus died on the cross, Paul says it's as if, in, in this level of reality, that everyone experienced that death. So when Paul looks around, he sees a bunch of people that died with Jesus, meaning they're kind of already there. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, Paul says that the death of Jesus on the cross, the historical death, had an effect on your life already. So he says, one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all for what reason? That those then who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So the way Paul looks at reality is what's going on in the world today is that everyone's actually dead. Whether they believe it or not, they think it's crazy or not, that they've actually died with Jesus, which is actually good news, and that those who live, so everyone's dead and only some will live, and that those, and he doesn't even tell you how that's going to happen, and that those who live should, the word should is usually like a bad word, okay? So it's like, there's one way to read this, all right, so everyone's dead, and some people choose to follow Jesus, and they come back to life. And now, they shouldn't live for themselves anymore. It's possible to read the entire Bible through this lens of obligation and rule, which is what that sounds like, you know? But Paul here, when you look at Paul's life, he never seems like a should kind of person. He never seems like he's obligated to do any of this. I mean, Paul is like a 100% or 0% kind of person when you read the story. He's either doesn't believe in Jesus and he's willing to kill people for it, or he believes in Jesus and he's willing to give his life for him. Paul's not doing things because he's obligated to do them. Paul's doing things because he's compelled and motivated by love. And so when he says, those who live now should not live for themselves. He's meaning now they have an opportunity not to live for themselves because living for self is, is a stunted view of life. 
It doesn't end in joy. It doesn't end in life. It doesn't end in peace. It doesn't end in any of these things. And so Paul's saying now people who come to life have an opportunity to actually live life, the abundant life that Jesus talks about, which is a life that's not lived for self, but lived for Jesus. That's fine. We can interpret it like that. Okay, so that Paul's saying we shouldn't live for ourselves, but we should live for Jesus. But that begs the question, is what does it mean to live for Jesus? And the word for for Jesus is actually, if you were to translate it literally, means to live on behalf of Jesus. So literally what Paul's saying here is that his, he's compelled by love because his view of the world has shifted to where, and he'll explain in a minute more of what this means, everyone has died and now there's an opportunity. By the way, what does it mean that everyone's died? The, why is it a positive thing? Is he saying that everyone has already, in a way, died to sin? Everybody, in a way, has died to their current identity. Everybody, in a way, has, has been impacted by this thing. So why doesn't everybody experience life? We'll talk about this in a second. But he's saying that we often view the world, even in Christianity, like it's just two groups, you know? Like it's like those who believe and those who don't believe. And there's some truth to that. But the, the real truth is kind of more mysterious and a little bit different. God looks down and he sees all of his children that he made. Okay? Everybody. And Jesus' death was for somehow everyone. And then what happens at some point is some of those people come to life, which Paul will talk about in a minute, but some of those people come to life, and then those, who pe- those people who come to life have the opportunity to live on behalf of Jesus, which I'm not going to talk about yet. And then he says, So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So Paul then, I want you to partly see this through Paul. He's changing, okay? So he says, because I believe that everyone has died when Jesus died, it's as if what what is happening is that God is starting over. This is transformation. Everyone's starting over. So in, the, in Genesis, if you read that story, one of the accounts of God creating Adam is he, he makes him out of dirt and clay and then he breathes breath into him, right? So he's, a, he's dead, he's not living. And then he breathes into him and he becomes a living being. And this is actually, in fact, the image that Paul is using again is that the whole world is full of just dead atoms, okay? Just people lying around. And that some people somehow will have the breath of God breathed into them and they will live. And the life that they will live will be like the life that Adam lived, which is life with God, not life for self. And so Paul's saying that God's actually doing the same thing right now. That's what's happening. And so the fact that in Jesus everyone died is a sign that God is starting over. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Now, now here's where kind of the, the rubber meets the road. Paul, in, this exists today, but in Paul's world, it was highly racist, okay? It was, um, for example, most of what Paul's actually talking about, if you read all of his letters, what most of what he's actually addressing is one issue, which is not completely relevant to us, we feel sometimes, so we don't talk about it much, but the real issue that Paul is talking about, if he were here today and talking, he'd probably bring it up, is that there's a separation between Jewish people and Gentile people. 
And this drives Paul's whole life in ministry. Is he sees he comes into a church and all the Jewish people over here and all the Gentile people over here, and he's pissed always about this. Okay? And what he's saying is that what Jesus has done means something specific. And if you actually received that love, it would change this one thing. You wouldn't have this separation, so you don't get it yet. So what he says is, and this is big for Paul, because Paul was one of the primary people that were, were, were holding together this racist system. Okay? They believed that the Jews had a special right to God, of which the Gentiles didn't. Now, they couldn't argue with the fact that Jesus brought the Gentiles into the faith, but they kind of didn't like it. And so they created lots of separations and lots of rules for people who are Jewish and Gentile people are people who are just not Jewish, anybody that's not Jewish. So he says, from now on, there's been a change. So Paul's perspective is changing. Now you want to understand, this is, an, this is a racist person who says, now I regard no one from a worldly point of view. The word worldly is literally the word flesh, and what he means by flesh is on the surface. The prime, uh, just, a, just a fully human way of seeing things. And this is just like the love thing, I'm not sure that we fully have internalized this point. We don't regard anyone according to the surface, according to the flesh, though we once regarded Christ in this way. So what does he mean? Uh, imagine this. Paul's saying, when I look at someone, I don't see anything that just kind of the, the surface way of seeing things would see. Things. I don't even see them. I don't notice them. I choose not to pay attention to them. They don't matter to me at all. What kind of things? Things like education, educational level. It means nothing. Paul says it means nothing to me. I don't care about income level. I don't care about nationality. I don't see physical appearance. I don't see gender. I don't see personality. I don't see religious beliefs or background. I don't see political beliefs or background. I don't see anything the person's done or anything they've not done. That's what Paul says. He says, it's because of what Jesus has done. If everyone's dead, when I see somebody, I see them within this category of alive to the presence of God or not. And once alive to the presence of God, I see them as living on behalf of Jesus. It's easy to believe that, like, uh, theologically. But Paul says that from now on, we don't regard anyone. This is why the church spiritual family is a radical thing when it's really lived out. No, we don't see anybody from a human point of view. And he, he says, though we once saw Jesus that way. What he mean is, Paul, he means literally, Paul and others around him saw Jesus based on worldly standards. They said, Jesus has no education. Okay? He has no, he doesn't have the, the credentials to be a rabbi. He's interpreting the Torah incorrectly, and he's throwing the law away. He's a drunkard, right, and a glutton. He doesn't follow the rules. They were viewing him only on the outward appearance. They were doing to him exactly what he was saying not to do, which is, and what he said to them is, people like Paul, you're like a whitewashed tomb, meaning you're dead, but the outside of your tomb is super clean, but there's nothing inside. You keep up appearances, you do well because you care about worldly point of view. You do that, but inside you have nothing, which eternally means nothing. And so Paul says, we used to see Jesus like that. Paul says, I used to see Jesus like that, which is why I didn't follow him. Everything for Paul was about 
judging on the outward appearance and judging Jesus to see, is he really who he said he was? And something happened to Paul. His heart changed radically in a moment. And he says, from then on I saw that the world is not as I thought it was. When we begin to be transformed, when our heart begins to be transformed, then we begin to look at people like this. So if you want to live based on love or compassion, I mean, imagine that you saw a life like this, that you saw people like this. This is how, by the way, that it's not actually difficult to love your enemy once you have love, right? It's very difficult to listen to the teaching of Jesus and try to do it and try to, try to do that. How in the world am I supposed to love my enemy? It's so hard. It wasn't hard for Jesus to love his enemy. And it becomes increasingly easier for Paul to love his enemy because he begin, his operating system changes to seeing enemies like he sees everyone else. And he's compelled by love to love them. There he's, then he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So that's how Paul's saying transformation works. The whole world is dead, which is a good thing. The whole world is dead. Those who live, the, what it means is, is those who are in Christ, which we'll talk about. Those who live on behalf of Christ, those who are in Christ. The new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. So this is what I mean by God changes things from the inside out. When we talk about holistic transformation, we mean that God changes things spiritually, but he also changes things socially. That God cares about us as individuals, but he also cares about communities and cities and injustices around the world. However, it's not that one is more important than the other, but the way that God changes things socially is always by changing the heart. In fact, it could be argued that that's all God is doing, is he's changing hearts. And when he changes a heart, it spills out into the rest of the world doesn't mean that God doesn't care and it doesn't mean that he won't speak strong words or do strong things to injustice but it means that he knows how to change it and changing surface things don't change doesn't change the systemic issue which is the heart so therefore if anyone is in Christ the new creation has come so he actually says that there's this miracle that when when Ben kind of woke up this is Ben when he, when he woke up, it's not just a random person, when he, when he woke up to the good news of Jesus and he became alive, what it says is that the creation that God's doing in the world, that God's recreating the world, that actually it's right there. So if we think God's not doing anything, God, from God's perspective, the, the recreation of Ben's heart is the new creation. Which is why Paul writes in Romans 8, another letter, that the whole creation, he says, all created things, are groaning as in the pains of childbirth, waiting for the children of God, the sons and daughters of God, to appear. What it's saying is that the whole created world, the systemic issues, right, the social issues, are actually waiting for the children of God to become the children of God. What does that mean? Paul doesn't spell it out. It means... It's happening now, and it will happen. It's happening as, Paul, as, as Ben comes to know Jesus, and it says, the new creation is actually here. Old Ben is gone. New Ben is here. That, act, it sounds funny, that actually what's happening is this is what creation's waiting for. We're used to seeing things very surfacey, but for Paul, he, he's like he lives on a different wavelength. And on that wavelength, he sees what's really happening of the heart. 
And this is why, by the way, there's rejoicing in heaven when someone chooses to know Jesus, because heaven understands what's actually happening. But creation's also still waiting, because we're in the middle of something. Number one, Ben might be a new creation, but Ben's heart is not a 100% understanding and living in and experiencing what it means to be a son. He's, he's in Christ, but not 100% experiencing what it means to live in Christ. And so the world is waiting for this as well, which God said he will do it. What he started, he will do. So Paul's, Paul's motivation is changing. Paul's understanding of the world is changing. And Paul's understanding of, of cultures and nationality and difference between people has been radically shifted. Paul's, I mean, think about it. Paul, the New Testament is clear that God loves diversity. But you almost see that to God, it's like a diversity. I mean, to God, it's as if you had like 100 kids. He says, I love the diversity of my kids, meaning you love how they're all different. But it's not really about diversity. It's about the fact that you love your kids. Your primary goal is not having diverse kids. Your primary goal is loving your kids. And so this is what Paul's saying is, Paul is beginning to have, with reality, this is quite simple. Paul's beginning to have God's perspective on everything. Jesus' perspective on everything. He says, what it means to live on behalf of Christ is Paul's outlook and his motivation and his personality are beginning to look like Jesus's. He says, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We're going to look at this word reconciled for a second. Paul's the only one in the whole Bible to use the word reconciled. Even though it's kind of a way that if you've been a Christian for a while, it's probably something you've heard, it's a way we think about. Uh, it, might, it might be a way that you think about your faith. Reconciliation is actually just Paul's words. Peter doesn't use it, John doesn't use it, Jesus doesn't use it. And you always wonder why, why did Paul choose the idea of reconciliation? For Paul, it's almost a very, it's a very clear way that he thinks about his faith. It's a very clear way he thinks about what's going on in the world. Again, for Paul, Paul was an enemy of Jesus. In a way that John was not, in a way that Peter was not, in a way that Matthew was not, and Mark was not, in a way that none, none of them were. Jesus called, I mean, uh, Paul called himself an enemy of Jesus. I mean, Paul did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. But he was angry at him. He thought he was dead, right? I mean, Paul thought that Jesus died on the cross, he went in the tomb, and he never left. But he was angry because Jesus had ruined his religion. He was pulling people away from it. He was corrupting it. And so Paul was happy to be his enemy. What has happened to Paul then, in his own story of faith, is he has been reconciled to God. The word reconciled means to, to restore to friendship, to restore to relationship, to have had a relationship or to have never had a relationship but been somehow connected with like a father who you never knew. But then at some point to be restored to perfect relationship with that person again, to relationship free of, 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 um, of things in between you or undealt with issues. Paul says reconciliation is what's going on. So actually, this is the point of transformation today that if we want to be about transformation that we have to be which is good news because it simplifies it, just about reconciliation. But there's a big difference that Paul talks about here about how reconciliation works. The way reconciliation works in the world is that Matt and I have an issue with each other. 
normally there's some level of responsibility on both sides. Sometimes it can be one-sided. But the way the reconciliation works is, we both know whose side it's on. Um, uh, the way it works, though, is that for Matt and I to reconcile, we're going to kind of have to both come to the table, right? We're going to have to both talk about what's happened and own things and forgive each other and make amends and then, and then extend trust. This is, not, this is not what Paul means by reconciliation. And this is the point he makes in 18. This is the other way that he, his perspective and his understanding of the world has changed. He says, all this is from God who reconciled. Paul's the only one, I mean, God's the only one with the rec- doing the reconciling. God reconciled us to himself. Uh, the words here are very passive on the human side. This is why it's good news, by the way. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it right away, but this is what makes what we talk about good news. All this, so the love that Paul's received, the shift to everybody dying in Christ and those who living being able to even live on behalf of Christ and having a perspective change where you can see everyone like God does. He says all that, all that stuff is from God who reconciled us. I mean, how does that even work? He, it's like, it's like if Matt is God, um, he, he reconciled me to himself with me doing nothing. See, this is, it's almost like uh, for Paul's old self and for anybody who, by the way, everyone is religious, okay, not just certain people, for any human being who likes to have ownership of their life, this, is, this will bother you when you really feel and experience what it means. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. I'm still not doing anything. And then he gave to me the ministry of reconciliation. And what does that mean? The ministry of reconciliation means this, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. This is the message of the good news. It's very simple. What, the whole life of Jesus, the whole Bible, what is God doing? What is it about? And Paul says, in the life of Jesus, God was active. And what he was doing is he was reconciling the world to himself. What it, so what, it, what had he have to do? He had to take everything that was between Matt and I. Things that I should have taken ownership of, God took ownership of them. You see what's happening? We come to the table and I have certain things that I'm supposed to deal with to be able to restore, be in restored relationship with Matt. When I didn't even know because I was dead, God came to the table with all my stuff on it and he took it all and responsibility for everything. Which sounds so wrong. But this is the gospel. The gospel. God was reconciling me to himself in the person of Jesus. Not counting my sins against me. And this is when it's not, there's a, there's a little difference here. It's not that God just forgives me of my sin, which usually the understanding in a person is like this, Matt, I'm so sorry for what I've done to you. Yeah, see? So, so I took ownership, and then Matt decided to forgive me. But somehow, in Paul's perspective, in the place where God lives, he forgave me before I came to the table. He forgave me before I was willing to own anything. He forgave me when I didn't want to be at the reconciliation table. So Paul says, this is what's happening. Everything's from God. He reconciled us to himself. Who's he talking to, by the way? This, I mean, you can say that when you read these verses, he's still talking about everyone. 
He reconciled us to himself through Christ and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The word ministry is, uh, the, the, there's like an image to the word in the New Testament. And the word ministry is, or minister, is like a person that serves a dinner table. And so let's say all of you are at the dinner table and you're sitting there and I come up and I just place a meal in front of you and you eat it. And what I'm doing is what Paul means by ministry, which really simplifies it. Paul's saying that God gave us that ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. And so then it seems like the ministry of reconciliation, which he gave to everybody and not to me, seems kind of heavy. How am I supposed to reconcile people or help them reconcile to God? And so he says this, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Okay, so the way that I help people reconcile to God is through this message. The message, by the way, the word message is the word logos in Greek, which means word, which also is another way of talking about Jesus. So there's a lot of meaning in these things, but I'll just leave that with you. He's committed to us, given to us, committed, put inside of us is the word, put inside of us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore... This is Paul's next shift. Who are we? Who am I now? Paul's saying, who am I now? I am now, therefore, Christ's ambassador. If you know what an ambassador is, is a person that goes out on official, in an official capacity with the, with the um, authority of the person they're sent by to do business on their behalf, to represent them perfectly. If you talk to me as the ambassador, you talk to the person that I represent. If I'm negotiating with you, you're negotiating with them. There's no difference. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though, this is Paul saying, it's as though God were making his appeal through us. We can read all these words and really get nothing out of it. But for Paul, what he's saying is, I'm telling you that Paul's saying, when I speak or when you speak, it's as if God's speaking. We are making his appeal through us. What is God's appeal? What does God want to say to the world? He says, we implore you, which is a strong word. <laughs> we implore you, beg you, on behalf of Jesus, be reconciled to God. Even the word reconciled in the Greek here is, is a, um, it's, I'm losing the word, but it doesn't require action on your part, actually. Not in the way we've thought, it doesn't require making amends on your part. You know, reconciliation, although Paul's the only one that uses it in the New Testament, was a very common way of speaking in his day for other religious people and the philosophers of his day. It was understood that people needed to be reconciled to God. I mean, this is still kind of like uh, generally understood in our culture. For people who have a concept of God or believe in him, it's kind of, we kind of understand that you kind of have to, have to live in reaction, relation to him and make amends with him or please him or beg of him. Or, you know, like you kind of live this reconciling life that you're needing to reconcile yourself somehow by your, by your behavior, with your words, by promising things. But this says, be reconciled, which is hard. You can read it the other way, but what it means in the Greek is to allow something to happen to you. We implore you on Christ's behalf to allow yourselves to be reconciled. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. So, the way that people change is by accepting the reconciling work of God. So, maybe that's for all of us, but let's say that I come back to Matt now, and we're at the reconciliation table, and he's God, and I come up. What God requires of me as a human being, the way that I begin a relationship with him, is to accept that he has accepted me. I don't come to the table to make amends for what I've done, although something still feels in me, the justice side of me feels like I should. But this is not the message. The message is come to the table, and God is the minister, by the way, the primary minister. Other people are just ministering on his behalf. I come to the table, and God serves me a meal, and of which I, the way that I come to know God is by accepting it. The way that you go to a restaurant, and someone serves you the meal, and you just receive it and eat it is the way that this all works. The way that holistic transformation works is it starts with us just accepting what God has already done on our behalf. And Paul ends with this little part here. Uh, Elodie and Azora, you can come up. I'm going to read one more thing that Paul wrote, and then we'll reread this last part. Paul writes in a letter, another letter, I want you to recognize that these are, these are real documents that we read. I mean, you realize what we're doing is we're just reading 2,000-year-old letters that people preserved, but that somehow have life in them. And I want you to hear that the person writing this, Paul, although he's inspired by God, is a real person who went through extreme brokenness. He means what he said. They're not just like, you know, like words that he wrote because he thought they sounded good. In fact, it can be even argued that Paul had no idea that we would be reading this right now when he sat down in a room and wrote it down. And so I want you to see that what Paul says here, he knows from personal experience. He means it. So he says to the Philippians in chapter 3, he's, he's angry, okay, because there's people in this church who think, who think well of themselves, who are proud. And so he's angry, and so he says this. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, reasons to put confidence in the outer appearance, I have more. See, Paul, he still has got a bit of like his old self in him. Eh? I have more circumcised on the eighth day. This just means that his heritage is pure. You know, I mean, imagine that, like the old racist part of Paul in a way. There's good things to that too, but he has a racist bent. What he's saying is, I'm pure. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know? It's like saying, I am 100% Caucasian. Nothing else in me. Like, oh, that's not good. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law... A Pharisee. Pharisee, not just kind of a bad person that Jesus didn't like, but the scholar of the day, the ones who followed it to the T. As for zeal, you know why Jesus wasn't a Pharisee, by the way, right? Not because he just uh, didn't agree with that way of doing things, because he didn't have the education to be a Pharisee. He wouldn't have been allowed to be a Pharisee.
in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, meaning was I serious about what I believed, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Let's just pause there. What he says is, when Paul says, when I read the Bible and I saw the requirements to live a good life, I don't think I had any faults. And then when he says here in verse 21 to the Corinthians, 20, 21, God made him who had no sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Paul says in Philippians next, but whatever gains to me, I now consider them loss for the sake of Christ. The, the word here is Sorry? Yes. It's a bad word. Paul says that it's garbage. It's nothing. All, and he's, he doesn't say the bad things of my life. That's often what we do. It's not the bad things of my life that are garbage, actually. It's the good things of my life that are garbage to me now. I don't care about them. I don't care. Like, Paul, I find it extremely important that we shift from understanding this from, like, a religious perspective. He's saying is the successes of my life are garbage. The, the mistakes I did not make are garbage to me now. I consider everything as garbage. Why? For the sake of, on behalf of Christ. What is even more than that? I consider everything as garbage. I consider everything in the world garbage for whose sake I have lost everything. Paul actually means that, by the way. He's literally lost everything. It's not a metaphor. I consider them garbage that I might gain one thing, Christ, that I might be found in him. This is the point of 2 Corinthians, by the way. I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or that comes from my way of seeing things or that comes from the rules of the world. I consider them that I don't want that righteousness, but what righteousness does Paul want? The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. What does righteousness mean? Is Righteousness means that the, the covenant-keeping promise of God, meaning God's faithfulness, meaning the character of God, meaning God himself, God's personality. So what Paul says here is he's realized that although he had many successes in life, that all those successes have actually kept him from one thing that means more than anything, and that he must consider them nothing, that he might gain one thing in, the, in life. You realize what Paul's saying here is he has lost everything else. Why? Not because he had to, but because he considered that what God was giving to him made everything else in his life pale in comparison. And it was a tangible thing. It wasn't like a, a metaphor or an idea or a belief that you, we come to a, a church or a place and it seems good for a second and then we go back out in the world and it doesn't seem like so, such a good idea to give up everything anymore. What he says is, this is what happened. This is what God's doing in the world. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, meaning Jesus was not acquainted with sin. Jesus had no... Like, imagine this. Imagine you have a child who is completely pure and has no understanding of sin. They don't even... They wouldn't know how to think of it. They wouldn't know how to, how to think of evil. It's hard. Once a child becomes pretty young, they can think of it. Jesus had, like, imagine slavery. 
Jesus couldn't think up slavery if he tried. He couldn't conjure up the idea. He couldn't expect to see it. He had no way of thinking about it. This is Jesus' choice. And God said he made him who had no ability to even think of slavery to himself become slavery itself. To feel the effects of slavery of all slavery that's ever existed in the world poured into himself as if he was the one who owned it. Why? And this is Jesus' free choice, by the way. It's not something that happened to him. He makes that clear. His love, Jesus' love, compels him, controls him. The love of his Father controls him to become sin. So that if we come into Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So therefore... Transformation in my life from now on, from here on out, everything that will happen in my life, all the ways that I will change and transform will be because if it's real, because I will, it will be something that happens to me, not something I do. So at Jubilee, we're called to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. So what does that mean? To share the good news literally means to let people know that God has already reconciled them. The reason that doesn't have an effect on some people, the reason they're not free, is because they have not accepted it. They have not sat down at the table and accepted that God has accepted them in Jesus yet. That's actually the good news. The good news is that it's all done. You don't have to make anybody think anything. You don't even have to make yourself think something. You just have to come to the end of yourself hungry enough that you're willing to sit down at the table and eat it. So that in Jesus, then what happens for the rest? uh, Once you do that, once you come back to life, what happens is he says that as you follow him, that you will actually become the righteousness of God. What's happening is a radical thing. He says that he's actually taking people like Ben that come back to life, that he's actually putting them in Jesus, that he sees them as their main identity, as, as, as his son, as free of any external way of viewing him. He's made an ambassador, so the words that he speaks are the very words of God. And what words are those? What is God saying that he wants people to hear? Is to accept reconciliation. So what does God require of me? I mean, isn't God angry with me? Doesn't he want me to make up for something? What does he want me to do? The good news, that's many religions say that. All the religions around Paul at this time are giving ways of reconciling to God, even Judaism. What you must do to reconnect. And what Paul's saying is that our message is very simple. Is that God has done everything because he wants to reconnect with you. And what you must do is just accept that and begin to let that truth take over your life. Thank you for listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org.